I'm Robert Pearson and this is Follow the Leader and we're doing another blue collar Bible scholar study. The goal is to take you from knowing absolutely nothing about the Bible to checking your pastor's footnotes mid-sermon on your phone real quietly. And uh, don't, just don't tell them about it, but you need to know the back of your head. You pronounce that Greek word wrong. So, today we are going to do Bible translations. How did, how did it get from a Jewish rabbi thrown out of his synagogue, writing in uh, Greek all the way to you, reading the Cottonfield Bible, or, you know, whatever version you're reading. So, that's, uh, that's what we're going to look at today. And it's important to know this as some backdrop, but please understand, every translation you have is good enough. And just read whatever you have, or read whatever you can understand. There are hundreds and hundreds of scholars that agonize over every single word in every single verse to get basically any English translation. So please, just for until you're at a level where you can question their translation decisions, just trust they did a good enough job and know in the back of your head, some of the details may be a little fuzzy, and never hang your entire argument on a single like verb tense of a word somewhere. Don't don't read that much into it, okay? That's not how you would read any other book on the planet. Uh, so don't don't read this one in that way until you have a little more understanding of some of the the crazier, nuanced, and complicated things. Okay? Uh, if you ever stuck or confused on a verse that doesn't make sense. Read it in as many translations as you can find. You can find literally all of them on the internet nowadays. And get your, uh, you'll, you'll get your head wrapped around what their, the main point of that verse is after, uh, after that. You know, read it over and over again. Still doesn't make sense. Uh, walk away from it for a day. Come back to it. Read the whole chapter. One sitting in a straight shot. And it still doesn't make sense. Then read that whole chapter. You know, read that verse in you know, five or six different translations. Still doesn't make sense? Read that whole chapter in five or six different translations. This is what it means to wrestle with God. You have to, you have to understand that you're not going to understand everything. And it's not going to be just magically revealed to you on the first time. But, be trying. Be reading. Be looking. Uh, I would read the text, the actual text of the Bible, over and over again in as many translations as you can find. You know, read the, the whole context, the whole chapter. And then, if you still haven't quite wrapped your head around what they're driving at, it's at that point in time you ask your pastor. And, uh, you know, once you've done everything you can on your own to read the actual text, just between you and God, and then ask your pastor what his read on it is. And still, that's not the authoritative stance of everything. Just go, all right, that's, that's, that's good enough for now. I can wrap my head around it now. And be okay with just not knowing for decades at a time. Or, you know, suddenly you'll read something else and it revises everything you thought you knew about this other passage. And uh, you've got to read it differently. That's, that's life. 
that's being a Christian and uh, you're developing a relationship with Jesus. So, all right, that was a, a big, long tangent. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. Now, uh, today we're doing Bible translations and how how to how to translate, how it came from where it started uh, to you right now. Um, briefly, I will mention, I apologize that the camera bounces just incessantly. Uh, this is the best setup I have right now, and that's too bad. Uh, I, I'm sorry. But I'm not going to do anything about it, so I guess that means I'm not, not truly sorry. Uh, I'll fix it eventually, but it's, it's a long to-do list. So, the very first original document is called an autograph. That's the actual piece of parchment or vellum or whatever that Moses himself or Ezekiel or Paul or uh, Matthew or Mark, that's what they actually wrote on with their own hand writing words on the document. It's called an autograph. Now, I say that, but we, we don't have any. None of them survived. We don't have any autographs. What we have are thousands and thousands of copies from that autograph. The earliest copies we have are well within a hundred years of the autograph. And they all match each other, barring some grammar nuance. Um, occasionally, numbers may, uh, number may be give or take one or two. The verb tense might be a little different. There's uh, variant spellings. Noah Webster wasn't born yet, so there wasn't a standardized spelling for a lot of words in uh, ancient Greek. So they spelled them the way they sounded out, and, you know, letters have similar sounds to each other. So you'll have, you'll have spelling variations sometimes. And uh, that's, that's it. That's the bulk of the differences between all the different translation, uh, documents that we have salvaged over the years. And so they're all copies from these uh, autographs. And all of the copies, though, are very reliable. The later the copies get, the more of the differences you have. But typically those differences are additions that will usually be from the Gospels. Most of them are in the Gospels, rather. And uh, what they do is, when one of the go all three of the Gospels will report an event, one of the Gospels has extra information, and what they did was they took that extra information and added it to the other two Gospels. So one guy, and uh, usually these are in Byzantine texts, uh, that's, um, no, I forget the exact date, it's, you know, 1300s or it's around about a thousand ish which is you know 900 years after the the life of Christ the uh, is where the the big differences begin to happen and it's mostly just that clerical error stuff where they reread a, a line and it, it looked like it fit so they kept it or they added um, a verse from a parallel passage some of some of the um, like Kings and Chronicles and stuff sometimes, maybe, but most of, most of it's in the Gospels. So, uh, an uh, interesting note, too. In all likelihood, Paul did not actually 
manually write. Uh, obviously, Paul wrote it, but when we use the word write, that means to take the pen and make the marks on the paper yourself with your own hand. And that's not the way that the books of the Bible were necessarily written. Uh, they used dictation because being able to write was good, but ink and paper were expensive. Like, buying a car kind of expensive. And you didn't just do it willy-nilly. And so when you were going to write, you not only needed somebody who knew how to write, you couldn't just use anybody, they had to know how to write well with good handwriting and spell things correctly the first time. And so that's was a rare skill. So you had to find somebody who'd be your amanuensis. This is a big fancy word. The guy you were dictating to. Uh, they were uh, a huge meatbag typewriter. So that's when uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is presumed to be the amanuensis for Peter, who uh, the Mark's Gospels thought to be Peter's Gospel, more, more likely. That, that he was the one who kind of laid it out for, for Mark to write. Uh, Luke wrote Acts and uh, also is thought to have written some of the epistles. Or Timothy possibly even written some of the epistles. Uh, Paul's, Paul's letters. And uh, yes, I pronounced the T. No, I will not stop pronouncing the T. So the way the, uh, the way they wrote it down was somebody else would write it down. They would be in the room and dictate what they want written and then, you know, check, yeah, that's that's it, good deal. So, just so you know, it's when Paul wrote it, we don't explicitly have his uh, his handwriting, we don't have those original copies, and even then it was somebody else writing it down for him. Uh, there's actually a fun uh, kind of marginal note, or a farewell right at the end of one of the letters, I forget which one, where Paul says, see, I wrote this in my own hand, see how large the letters are that I write, um, as he was closing that out, you know, saying say hi to Jeff and oh uh, tell Charlotte I can't wait to eat her cake when I, I get there or whatever the, a little like personal note right at the end of the letter to people he knew in that congregation he, he makes a mention of see how I write this in my own hand so he would apparently write the farewell part of his letters in his own hand and then the rest of it the, uh, the theological portion he would have somebody else write out so those are that's where it starts the autographs and from there, as we move forward in time, the, uh, the early church got the original copies. Uh, so, that, well, all right, so let's start over real quick. The Old Testament, I'm going to do in a minute. Um, but obviously the Old Testament, sorry, sorry about the noise there. The Old Testament came from copies of copies of copies. So they... None of the original text, having been written at around uh, 1400s uh, BC, none of those would have uh, could have possibly survived. And so everybody's working on reliable copies of copies of those up to the time of the New Testament. So the New Testament comes to us from the early church. Paul's writing letters to just. Christians that are alive in churches that he started. And so those letters get kept because they're really awesome. And the guys in the churches go, wow, this is really important. Uh, we need to save this. 
the only Bible they had at that time was a thing called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures that was made because more and more Greek, uh, more and more Jews were scattered abroad in the diaspora in the, uh, the constant rising and falling of Israel, then Babylon took them over, then Greek took them over, and uh, every time they get taken over again, more and more Jews get shipped out to other countries, and uh, most of them would stay there where they were at. That's why you have Jews in literally every country still today that are everywhere, uh, because their country kept getting taken over so much. It was a really big deal in the 60s when they reestablished Israel, and they're like, no, not again. This is, this is ours now. Everybody else go away. That was, uh, that was a really big deal for them. It was the first time they'd had a country since the Roman Empire had taken them over and then completely obliterated them for trying to rebel against Rome. That was, it was a huge deal. So, the, uh, the Septuagint was translated for all these Greeks that were all over the place. And they didn't speak Hebrew anymore because they had been in uh, Greek-speaking countries for so many generations. So a bunch of scholars got together and uh, made a concerted effort to translate the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint for the 70 scholars, and there's a little folklore about it. I, I won't bother to, uh, to repeat here because it's, it's a little far-fetched. And uh, when, you, when you read the Septuagint, it just doesn't... It doesn't flow right, where like it's cl it's clearly a different guy between different books that, that translated them. And uh, supposedly the scholars, 70 scholars, I'll, I'll, I'll share it. it, it's kind of a fun anecdote. The 70 scholars took the scriptures and they each translated their own Greek version of the Old Testament is separate from each other. And then when they came back together, all 70 of them had written word for word the exact same translation. I'm skeptical of that. Almost all of the scholars are really skeptical that, nah, that, that probably didn't happen. Um, but I don't know. God does crazy stuff sometimes. Uh, when you read the Greek of the Septuagint, you really get the feeling that it was a different guy for each book or each series of books. The, the Pentateuch, the first five books, are not translated the same way the Kings and Chronicles and the, um, some of the prophets are. They just don't match. Um, in the, the way, I, I only know this because I did a, a word study recently. As you go through the Septuagint, the same word will be translated very different ways when the contexts are identical. Um, and it's they, they both meant the same thing, but you can see, well, I'll get into form literal and dynamic equivalent later, but you can see they're using two different translation methods where one guy is going word by word and the other guy was taking the gist of it, the meaning of the Hebrew text, and um, saying, that, oh, okay, well, this is more specifically, boom, a better Greek word for it. Whereas the other guy used one Greek word for one Hebrew word and he used that everywhere. Even though the Hebrew, the Greek word didn't exactly mean one-for-one uh, one, um, meaning. So, that's, uh, that's the Septuagint. That is the Bible of the early church, and that's all they have. And they start getting letters from all the apostles, from James and John 
and Peter and Paul and Mary. That was a, that was a joke. I was making a reference to the band. Um, any writings of Mary come from 300 or much later, and they're all just utter tripe and Gnostic heresy. Don't. It's terrible. All all the scholars agree. Anytime you see something on the History Channel, odds are that it was debunked uh, in 1960, typically. Like that whole Gospel of Judas thing that was a big deal. Nah, or Thomas. Sorry, it was a. I think it was the Gospel of Thomas that was a big deal. It might have been Judas. Whatever one made the rounds on History Channel and TV and stuff. Absolute nonsense. The scholars have known it was utter nonsense for years and years. It was in the 1960s they found it, and they were like, ah, this is garbage. It's clearly Gnostic heresy. It's got way later dates than any of the other uh, Greek manuscripts, the best Greek manuscripts of the, uh, the New Testament. This is nonsense. This is fan fiction about Jesus. We, uh, we don't care. And then, you know, oh, it's brand new because nobody knows their history anymore. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the way of it. All right. So the early church, they hang on to all of their, uh, their letters and the, the gospels that go around and they start rewriting handwritten copies of these things because they're important. And they start circulating copies amongst each other. And it's, uh, it's a, I, I forgot to look up the date for this. Uh, I, I looked up some of the dates beforehand so I, the, the fuzzy details I have a little more clear. Definitely check all my footnotes, look for this stuff on your own, but now you know the vocabulary and the phrasing of a lot of this. So you can um, you can do your own follow up uh, later because always always follow up. Never take my word for it. Never take anyone's word for it. That's the whole point of what I'm doing is to equip you to question the man, question everybody. It's the one thing the baby boomers had right. Question everything, um, and then when you get a solid answer, go like, oh, all right, and then calm back down. Uh, don't don't go crazy with it. So. The, uh, there was a council of Nicaea where they kind of agree on here's here's the canon text and that's uh, I want to say three or four hundred something uh, I want to say 325 but I'm not sure um, it's definitely ballpark of right out or a little before 400 AD this is after Jesus's uh, life and death AD stands for Anno Domini that's Latin for the year of our Lord so after Jesus was was born on earth is the uh the meaning of that so that's the bible they have and at the time it works because everybody reads greek uh, the big deal about the greek of the septuagint is it's koine greek meaning common greek it's what people spoke in the marketplace this was not scholarly greek this was not the greek of homer or socrates or whatever this was the greek of the guy going to the grocery store writing a note on a on a pot shard because you know they didn't make post they hadn't invented post-it notes yet so what they did was whenever they had old pottery that broke they keep the shards and then that was their post-it notes uh, it's called ostracon because nothing could have a simple name in uh scholarship you know we got to keep the ivory towel ivory so uh you know dumb people need not apply to everybody that's not us stuff bothers me. All right. So um, they that's the Greek that was used for the Septuagint, and that's the Greek that the New Testament is written in from the word go. And uh, some scholars disagree. Some books in the New Testament might have originally been written in other languages, but we haven't found any, so you don't know. 
Uh, it's your best guess, and you don't know, so don't worry about it. Um, nobody knows, unless one day we find a manuscript that predates our oldest Greek manuscript of the same book, then you can go, well, look, it must have been in Hebrew first, and then got translated to Greek later, but, you know, whatever. So they're using the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, as their Bible, and then they add to it all the writings of apostles and uh, the uh, Jesus's life stories get packaged together to make the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, Testament is a big fancy word for a, for a covenant or agreement or contract. And so basically the old contract with God was Israelites and the temple and stuff, and the new contract with God is salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, moving on up, the Septuagint, I remember if I gave you a, a date for that, it's uh, 132 B.C., before Christ. They, uh, they finally finished it at 132 years before Jesus is born. You have um, the Greek Old Testament being translated from the Hebrew text they have at that time. Now, as we move forward through the Bible, there's another thing that turns up. And the oldest Hebrew manuscript we have is called the Masoretic Text. And that's from around the 800 A.D. So we're talking 700 years after Christ is alive. Those are the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have. So the Greek manuscripts we have are actually older than the Hebrew manuscripts, even though the Hebrew came first. This is kind of important. Um, it's important to remember, too, older doesn't necessarily mean better which is why all the modern Bibles are translated from the Hebrew. There's a shift that happens later on. So, the, um, everybody's trying to get back to the original language it was originally in. Uh, that way you're, we're getting closer to the source um, because those grammar, the grammar nuances and vocabulary nuances do impact the meaning of the text. And so it's important to know what they originally were instead of just taking, you know, from Latin or whatever, when you've got a translation of a translation of a translation. Um, it'd be nice not to have to do that, to, to have it as original as possible. So this is, a, this is something that's going on from the word go, is it's being translated into a common language because people no longer speak the language it was originally written in, and they're wanting to make that transition as close to the original language as possible. So the Masoretes are a group of people that are Jewish monks that just copy the scriptures all day long. And they're the ones who add all of the vowel pointing and stuff. You look at Hebrew, it's got swooshy looking letters that uh, look um, almost like hieroglyphics. And then it, they've got little dots and squiggles all around them. And so all of the Hebrew letters are consonants. Those are the hard sounds. And then all of the vowels, the soft sounds, are the little dots around them tell you how the vowels are. Those dots did not show up until the Masoretes are recopying the text. Because almost nobody speaks Hebrew anymore, even the modern Hebrew is different from ancient, ancient Hebrew, they, uh, they didn't know how to pronounce it. See, it used to be you spoke it, you knew how the words were said. So the, in order to encode or record how the words are supposed to sound, they put dots on it so that way you could teach other people um, 
who you know didn't speak Hebrew or haven't grown up speaking Hebrew how to how to read and speak Hebrew uh, because they were trying to preserve the tradition, preserve the Torah, and so we owe them a lot. And the the big deal about the Dead Sea Scroll find that um, they found is a lot of the Dead Sea Scroll finds are from 100 and 200 and 300 sometimes BC. It's really old stuff. It's awesome. So the Isaiah scroll is the big one that they take the Isaiah scroll, which is from uh, 200 something uh, BC, and the oldest Hebrew manuscript of anything we found, and it's got most of Isaiah. I forget how much of uh, Isaiah. There's like 70% of Isaiah or something that we we could salvage because you know it's it's falling apart. And they pull it up out of the jars in the desert somewhere. Uh, uh, shepherd found it because they threw a rock in the cave. And he was like, oh, there's a cave over there. What's here? What? So, um, but all of the stuff that we can read that we, uh, we can find, when you compare it to the Masoretic text, almost a thousand years later, word for word for word for word the same. The only difference is, I forget exactly, once again, like I said earlier, uh, spelling variations or a verb tense here and there, and that's it. Everything else, line by line by line, matched. And so that lay, uh, lends credibility to the rest of the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew t- uh, Torah, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that the Masoretes um, preserved through the years with their tradition of um, writing and rewriting the, the codexes. Codex is a big fancy word for book. I don't know why you can't just call it a book. I don't know, because Ivory Tower, because they, they want to be special. They need special words. Uh, you got to confuse the masses, obfuscate the truth from the layman. So, what you have then is the Masoretic text, the oldest one we have is about 800, and uh, so, now we're up to about, uh, let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit. At some point in time, the early church which was people meeting in houses or inside of repurposed synagogues and uh, running from the Romans trying to kill them becomes what is today the Catholic Church. Uh, There's a really slow, gradual transition. A lot of people point their finger at Constantine, the first uh, Christian emperor. Um, it's, It's hard to know how much these people were being genuine with their appeal to the scripture and Christianity and how much these people were just using scripture as a pretense for doing what they would have done anyway. It's difficult. You can't know somebody's heart. So it's important to remember that, uh, yes, you can look at something and go, that's wrong and that's right. But understand, that doesn't mean you determine that person's eternal salvation. That doesn't mean you get to decide what their relationship with God is. Um, Just know that it's really awesome that Constantine said, no, Christianity is okay. You guys can do your thing. In fact, you know what? Now we're a Christian nation. I've decided Rome is Christian now. And you guys just have to eat it. Also, I'm going to make my entire army get baptized. All right, less, less cool mandating people to convert to Christianity. It's, uh, it's such a bad precedent, I think. But, I mean, you're, uh, we're moving in the right direction, I guess. Uh, oh, also... As my soldiers, I'm just going to march the platoon through a river, and that's them being baptized. And also, they're all going to keep their right hand in the air, 
because that's their killing arm and that still belongs to me, but God can have the rest of them. Ah, I don't know how much is just really bad theology applied sincerely or how much is, ah, you're trying to game the system, man. And I think, I, I think you know better, really. It's, I don't know where that is. That's between him and God. But you could just look at it and point at it and go, that's kind of shady, bud. That's real shady. So, in that time, uh, I forget who exactly the Caesar is. You know, people come and gone. It's uh, the year 382 A.D., and we got a new pope, and this pope meets up with a guy named Jerome. Saint Jerome, as he's referred to in the Catholic Church. And he's like, hey, you're a really good scholar, bud. Uh, why don't we get a Bible that everybody can read? So this whole time, because individual churches and people in churches have just been writing the scriptures that they had them, you have a lot of different translations from the Greek New Testament into Latin, because... Rome spoke Latin. And as this as the gospel and Christianity spread further and further, oh, as Christianity spread further and further into Rome, more and more of the church spoke Latin. And so more and more people are like, I, I can't read Hebrew. Can we get something I can read, please? Awesome. And so you've got you've got a lot of different translations of the Latin, uh, Latin translations of the original Greek and original Hebrew. Uh, scriptures that these guys are using and they're all a little different and it makes it a little confusing when you're having to go from church service to church service to church service or where uh, you're trying to argue points and so this dude Jerome gets tasked by the Pope and the Pope's like look can we make it just make one okay can you take all of them and uh, combine them I need one whole New Testament please and Jerome's like yeah, no problem, Bob. I got you. So Jerome then proceeds to translate from the uh, best Greek manuscripts that he had at that he had access to at the time the entirety of the New Testament, and he's like, "This is pretty cool." So there's a, as always with any new Bible translation, everybody freaks out because their favorite passages are worded wrong now. And uh, you just got to deal with it. Read the one you like. Don't complain to everybody. But they, they were having those problems even in, you know, three, 400 A.D. It's, there's nothing new under the sun, man. People don't change. Well, I mean, they change with Jesus. But in general, humanity as a whole is going to maintain its, its consistent character throughout all time. So, um, Jerome, he's rewriting everything in, into uh, Latin from, from the original Greek. And then he's like, well, I could do the Old Testament, too. I mean, I'm already here. Why not? So he sits down with the Septuagint and does the entirety of the Septuagint from Greek into Latin. It's the Latin Vulgate because it's common Latin. He's going from common Greek that people spoke in the marketplace and in their homes and businesses to the common Latin. Not scholarly literary Latin, but common Latin that everybody spoke in their businesses and homes and the marketplace. What they wrote their grocery lists in. Um, archaeologists, a lot of archaeology is finding people's grocery lists. It's people have always done the same things that they always do. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, find that in the Bible. It's in there. So, 
the and don't just Google search it. Like at least go to a Bible website and then search the Bible website. Some different translations. You know, work for it a little bit. But yeah, computers make us lazy. They're pretty awesome. So he's got this entire translation of Latin Vulgate, and he gets a little excited, and he's like, "What? Can, can I find the Hebrew?" And he digs up the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, or the Hebrew manuscripts he could collect at that time, and then tra- retranslates the whole Old Testament from the Hebrew instead of from the Greek. And uh, that gets uh, later on, very much later on, adopted by the Catholic Church as the Latin Vulgate. Vulgar, common, vulgarities. That's a fancy word for cussing. If you're particularly aloof, you don't swear or cuss, you, you use vulgarity. So um, the, the Latin Vulgate becomes sort of the standard Bible translation for the Latin-speaking church. Obviously, the Greek Orthodox are like, we don't have to change anything, man. We're good. So uh, once again, though, there's that, that constant thread of regular people in regular language need a reliable way to read the Bible in their own tongue. Now, what's funny is, after that, you got to go all the way down the road. The Latin Vulgate was the gold standard in Bible translations for more than a thousand years. So we go from ballpark of 400 AD all the way to uh, 1500 AD, from 400 to 1500. That is a long time to be using the same Bible translation. That's crazy. Apparently, the dude does good work. So, it's in about the 1400s. They start fishing around and rediscovering Greek manuscripts and finding out that they have some pretty old Greek manuscripts. And this guy named... Uh, i got to look at my notes because he's got a weird name. Uh, Erasmus. There we go. I was, I was thinking about it. This guy named Erasmus starts collecting Greek texts. And he's like, it was originally in Greek, though, not in Latin. Can we, I don't know, can we get a Greek text going? So, uh, once again, the funny thing is, the oldest documents he had to work from are still from 1100 AD. They're still way newer than the manuscript. They're copies of copies of copies of copies. They're still pretty good, though. But he used the, uh, the mainly Byzantine Greek texts. And uh, those are kind of known in scholarly circles for being the more loose translations. Um, if you uh, com- comparing all the Greek texts with all the other Greek texts, the ones that have the most difference, the most uh, added lines or, you know, a, a quick, like, two- or three-word explanatory, you know, addition or, uh, you know, they'll, they'll sit there and add stuff from the other Gospels to the other Gospels. Byzantine does that a lot. The Byzantine manuscripts do that a lot. But those are the best ones he had at the time, and they're from about 1,000, uh, 1,100-ish is the, the oldest one. He's got others that are a lot newer. Uh, the oldest one that he had was from like 1100-something. So he starts digging in and compiles, because once again, they're all fragments. It'll be one book here, one book there, 
you'll have one entire that was falling apart and you can only salvage a book or two from it or most of one book and so they, they patchwork it like a uh, like a jigsaw puzzle ah, I'm running away okay they patchwork it like a jigsaw puzzle to to get a single text where every single line in that text is the from the oldest possible document the the best possible translation and he does that with the entire New Testament and then he still had some gaps in the Greek and so in those places he took the Latin Vulgate and translated into Greek from the Latin to fill in the, the gaps and most of what he had was from the Byzantine text and then he he fills in the gaps with the Latin Vulgate uh, so you're still not quite as good that's the reason all the newer translations don't use the Textus Receptus but it was the best Greek version at that time so now you have, uh, there's a kind of a big uh, to-do because it was about the 1440s that Constantinople falls and the, the old Roman Empire kind of crumbles, that you have all of these Greek scholars coming out of uh, Constantinople and stuff out into to the world and into the, the broader countries. So you have all these Greek scholars that just start showing up in all these different countries and now everybody's able to do a, a higher level of Greek scholarship. So as you're uh, as you're coming around to it, we are coming down through the history. So the Textus Receptus starts running around, making its way through all these different uh, scholarly circles, and everybody's really excited. And they all start doing kind of their own versions of it here and there, um, making all of their. Uh, slight tweaks of like, oh, I think this reading is better, or this is an older document, the older documents don't include this word. And, uh, do, 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 yeah, all right. So that's all for the Texas Receptus. Now, moving on, what we have here is we're going to get to a guy in the uh, 1380s. This is before the Texas Receptus comes together. Um guy by the name of Wycliffe, W-Y-C-L-I-F-F. -F. Um, Wycliffe has his uh, first translation uh, in English. He's the one who first uh, starts really pushing to translate into Old English. Everybody's speaking Old English now. They're not reading Latin or uh, Greek or anything. They, they don't read Latin anymore. Only the priests in the Catholic Church know how to read Latin. And uh, we just have to trust they're telling us the Bible right, man. And that, that just doesn't seem right. So Wycliffe starts translating, and he does an entire translation. Um, you know, him or some of the scholars he worked with. You know, as soon as history states anything solidly, modern scholars are like, well, actually, um, you know, we're, we're going to presume to suppose that one man couldn't have done that. And so it was actually like three or four of his students underneath him worked together and he oversaw the project. And, you know, so Jerome didn't actually translate anything. It was the, the team that he worked with. I, I don't know, maybe, but um, I feel like a lot of times they're just contrary to be contrary. Moses wrote Genesis. No, he didn't. Uh, okay. Do you have evidence for that? No, I, I suppose that there's a, uh, a priestly source, though, and a Yahweh source, and a, an Elohist source, and a Deuteronomical source. W why? Ah, because. Cool. Um, this is getting way long. So, why? <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot to it. So, Wycliffe 
uh, does the first translation into English. This is still handwritten copies, by the way. We, they haven't invented the printing press yet. And so he translates it from the uh, Latin, from the Latin into uh, English, Middle English, uh, the whole Bible. And it's, it's kind of a big deal, and it's a little bit of a to-do. And then he also starts speaking out against the Catholic Church, and they're not as excited about that. Uh, and then he uh, he dies of a stroke in about 1383-ish, 86-ish, something like that. And then it, it it keeps being a big deal. And people keep making copies of his Bible, and it keeps showing up. And the Catholic Church is like, all right, guys, it's cool. You're done now. Settle down. And they make it illegal to own a copy of a Wycliffe Bible after 409. Yeah, 14, after 1409. So, it's at that time, this guy named William Tyndale starts looking around thinking, that feels kind of shady. And he starts looking at, he's really excited about this new Texas Receptus thing that shows up, and he's, he's operating now back in the, uh, the 14, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's operating in the, the 1490s to 1500s uh, time frame. And he gets excited and starts using this Texas Receptus thing and some of the Hebrew texts that he can find. And he puts together the Tyndale Bible, which is an English translation. And he starts getting in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. And eventually they arrest him because not only, nobody just stops at translating the Bible into English for the common man. Uh, They also start speaking out against the Catholic Church saying, uh, hey, you guys aren't saying what's in this book here that we're supposed to be following. What's the deal? What is the deal? Uh, and then it's at the same time, King Henry is, you know, killing his wife off, marrying a new wife, and then eventually just like, can I just divorce them? Do I have to keep killing them to get a new one? Uh, it's, it's kind of a pain. It's a little bit of a hassle. And he starts calling out the king, and he's like, hey, that's wrong. Stop. Well, you have a king and a pope, and neither of them like you. So, of course... He's allowed to be a free citizen who thinks what he wants. Until they throw him in jail for thinking and and saying what is right and true. Uh, So that's the way the world works, right? So they put Tyndale in prison. And after he's there for a year, they find him guilty of heresy, hang him, and burn him alive. I'm sorry, burn him alive. They they burn his corpse at the... He's burned at the stake, but after he's hung to death. It was... felt excessive. But I feel like maybe they were trying to be kind. We're like, well, we hung you first, so you weren't alive to burn. So, his last request, his last wish, is that the king, the king's eyes would be opened. And it's just a coincidence that uh, a year after he's executed, um, suddenly King Henry has a push for an English translation of the Bible called the, the Matthew Bible. Uh, done in English, and it it just kind of almost entirely rips off the Tyndale Bible, uh, you know, except for the parts they didn't like that they changed that you know said the Catholic Church is wrong, you know, uh, co- call no man father for one is your father. Well, no, no, you're, you're going to keep calling the priest father. Um, so you know the the stuff that's uncomfortable. So the uh, the Tyndale Bible then goes on to be the foundation for almost every English Bible thereafter. And then, you know, therefore then the um, predecessor to all of our um, English Bibles now. 
to an extent. So based on then the Tynd- a lot of the Tyndale Bible's uh, work, uh, around the 1560s, this cat named John Calvin shows up. Once again, you can't just translate the Bible in English. you got to tell the Catholic Church that they're wrong. And uh, he and a bunch of his followers get kicked out of England. And they go to a place called Geneva. They start living in their own little Christian community. Once again, everywhere you look, history is full of humans. And by and large, humans are pretty good and pretty terrible. So, yeah, Calvin did a lot of cool stuff. He stood up for what was right. He made a Bible translation that was the first mass-printed English copy of a Bible that also came with uh, explanatory notes. It came with a uh, scriptural cross-reference in the back so you could follow multiple verses about the same topic. It came with maps and charts. It was basically a modern Bible. It was crazy. And it was the earliest one to do this. And it's in 1560. That's nuts. Uh... Also, he was really big on a communist community, and he ran it like a tyrant, and he was a jerk. And the more you look into him as a person in history, you're like, that's, uh, you could have done better, man. But if you look at what he accomplished, it's also really good. And it's important to know that history is full of terrible people doing really awesome things. And it's a story of humanity, really. So... That's the Geneva Bible. It's the first modern Bible, and it's based largely on Tyndale's work. And these are all based off of the Textus Receptus, which is just the Latin, fancy Latin for the received text. The received, uh, the Greek text that they received from the earlier churches, once again, the Byzantine manuscripts, uh, for that guy. So now that brings us all the way up to the 1600s. Uh, King James, they, they, time to update the English version, the Geneva Bibles, everywhere. And uh, the Geneva Bible is kind of a big deal because that's the Bible that uh, was used by Shakespeare whenever there's scripture references and stuff in Shakespearean literature. It's Geneva Bible. And then also that's one of the first Bible translations that make it to the New World, to America. It comes over on the Mayflower and it's in a museum somewhere still, the, an original Geneva Bible. It's pretty awesome. So in 1600-ish, uh, King James comes along. And right before he became king, he agreed to make a new Bible translation, and they were like, cool. So he becomes king, and he's like, all right, time to do it. All right, everybody, do the stuff. And he gets with a guy named Stephanus, um, who, surprise, relies heavily on the Tyndale Bible as his uh, kind of base text, and uses the Textus Receptus and the best Hebrew manuscripts they had at the time to render then into English, for the common man, the King James 1611, or authorized version, or the authorized text. And that stays basically unchanged to today. Uh, you can still get them. The, the font is mainly what's different, because uh, back in the day, S's looked like big fancy letter F's. Anymore, that uh, we just don't have. So, um... There's a lot of things we don't do anymore for the, the way the, the text comes together. Um, sorry, the camera did a thing and it, it threw my train of thought. So a lot of things that they do in print and the way it's punctuated we don't use anymore. So outside of that, though, all the vocabulary is 400 years old. And that's why the these and thous are there. And it's just a difference between uh, singular and plural when you're saying you and yours nowadays. We don't have a difference between one person or multiple people. It's, hey, you. Uh, they would... 
you know, thou or thee, I forget which is singular, which is plural, but that's the difference between thee and ye is one singular, one's plural, and one's accusative versus nominative. It's, I mean, once you, once you understand, oh, they're just the same but different, and just your brain whitewashes it to all say, you, hey, uh, it's, it's easier to, to wrap your head around. Now, uh, everybody used the Texas Receptus and Hebrew and it became the gold standard for years and years and years. And everything after the King James is based on the King James largely as their, their text. And then they would kind of quibble over the details or modernize the grammar and stuff. Or uh, some of the vocabulary choice as words change meaning. Cherish no longer means unconditional Christian love. It means you, you really like something. And charity, once again, no longer means unconditional Christian love. It means giving money to poor people. So, now, modern Bible translations are basically the same, but we have uh, older Greek texts we can work from now. And we also have older Hebrew texts we can work from now. And so the very best in Greek texts is the morphological Greek New Testament, and it's whatever the latest edition is. Um, but they're, they dig up all of the oldest manuscripts that we have, and they combine them to be a single, complete New Testament, because we don't have one manuscripts one manuscript that's the entire New Testament. And so they all combine together to make a single New Testament that has, um, you know, all of the best readings that we can find. And even then, some of the readings are a coin toss. And it's just whatever the scholars thought was right, and then they'll leave a little footnote to go, eh, it could be the other way, but all of the earliest manuscripts have XYZ. Uh, even though there are only two or three early ones. So then that's the, do you have the weight of, we've got... Oh, hundreds that all say it one way, and we've got two, but these are the oldest two. What do we do? And so that's what the scholars kind of agonize over and fight over for the little nuance. Once again, it's never a big detail. It never changes the fact that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, come to die for your sins, and was raised from the dead. You know, all that's the same. Those things never change. So, the, um, so it's the morphological Greek New Testament. And then in Hebrew... They've done the same thing with the Masoretic text, and they've incorporated some of the Dead Sea Scrolls work, and uh, some of the other things we've had, like the Oxyrhynchus papyri and stuff, had some Hebrew in there, but uh, a lot of that was Greek. So they, they put it all together, and they, at least I think, I think the Oxyrhynchus is fine. Anyway, irrelevant. So they put it together, and they have what is the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia, Stuttgartensia, or whatever. It's uh, Biblical Hebrew something. It's in German. Uh, a lot of these scholars are all German. So the, the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia is your, your best, most scholarly, most agonized over detailed, exacting historical detail of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that we have currently. And those then are what all the modern translations are based off of. Uh, and that's where all of your other things come from. Now, modern translations. There are really three fundamental kinds of translations. Uh, really, it's kind of two. There's, a, there's one way, another way, and then kind of a middle route. So the first one is form literal. This is what the King James Bible is. Uh, this is what New American Standard is. Uh, uh, Revised Standard, Darby's Literal, Young's Literal, anything with literal in the Bible translation. They are form literal. They take word for word for word for word. Now, what that does is it gets a really exact, specific, correct translation of the Greek. But you have a problem now, because English word order 
matters and it changes what things mean. So now you have to take the Greek word order and keep it the same as much as you can. And then when the English meaning would be changed, you got to change the word order so the meaning fits right for English. And that's it. So most of the word order is preserved. And then what that does, though, is it makes it really hard to read in English. So that's why it's like an 11th grade reading level for the New American Standard Bible and like a 5th grade reading level for the NIV, the New International Version. They used they, they did stuff a slightly different way. So that's why the King James is hard to read, too, is not only is it old-timey, you know, five, six, four hundred, yeah, so it's, um, you know, like a 500-year-old English that we don't use anymore. It's also predominantly in Greek word order, not in English word order. So you've, you've got that going against you as well. So your, your, your accuracy is better, but now your reading level is, is a lot higher. It's a lot harder to understand uh, in a natural flow. And even then, even if you do understand it, it's just taxing to have to wrap your head around not regular word order. So the, uh, the next thing is uh, paraphrase which is just kind of a uh, idea for idea. Where you, you take, here's the gist of the text, and now I'll, I'll replicate that in English in a regular vernacular. Well, this is tricky, because now you're more beholden to the translator. You're relying on what the translator thinks this passage says, and then they're going to communicate what they think it says in uh, to you. So it's less you to the text, and it's more you to a really smart guy to the text. Uh, which is okay, but you have to know that that's what it is. And once again, it's easier to read. It's a lot easier to read, but now your accuracy is going to suffer. Your accuracy isn't where it, it was, but it's a lot easier to read. Now, then of course, dynamic equivalence is the thought for thought, um, idea for idea, which is the bridges the gap. It's a little easier to read, uh, but it's still there are places where the wording is off. But it's going to be a lot more accurate than a paraphrase. Accurate meaning to to what the text says. Because um, the theological nuance is the only place this really matters. Um, is, is what theological nuance are you deriving from this verse? Uh, if there's none, your paraphrase isn't going to have any theological nuance. Um, so that to split the difference, to the accuracy to the exact words is going to be less, which means you have you have more of the translator between you and the text than a form literal, but it's going to be a lot easier to read. And those are the middle of the road Bibles like the NIV and uh, the ESV. Um, the New Living Translation is a little more towards the paraphrase side, and so there's a, kind of a continuum now, and you have these. Uh, Bible translations are somewhere on the continuum. The loose paraphrase Bibles are things like the Cottonfield Bible. It is hilarious. Look it up. There's only a New Testament available. And uh, the Message, which is a really good translation. Uh, one guy did it. Um, but he's a pastor. He worked from the original Greek and Hebrew. And his goal was not to be very specific and exacting. His goal, his goal was to, in a relaxed conversational English, represent the message for God's people. And so once you have that, now you can look at a more exacting translation to discern nuance because you know what the big picture is. You've got to know the big picture 
and then you can zoom in on the details and argue about where the pixels line up. If you're just looking at a field of pixels and you have no idea what the big picture is supposed to be, you're sunk. Uh, or a jigsaw puzzle works too. You know, if you, if you don't have the picture on the box, try solving a jigsaw puzzle. Good luck, pal. So that's, um, so the, the Eugene Peterson, the message, it's really good if you just don't have a high reading comprehension or you're still really new to Christianity and you're having trouble wrapping your head around all these big concepts. Go with the message. It's, it's going to help you wrap your brain around it better. But just keep in the back of your head the details, the nuance, the theological ramifications of a verb tense. They're not going to be there. Don't look for it there. That's not what you're looking for. You're going to read that the way you would read a, a Tom Clancy novel or a Sherlock Holmes novel or something. You're going to sit down and just read and go, oh, cool. I got you. Um, you know, you're not going to watch it. Who, nobody watches a TED Talk and go, oh, he used this one verb tense when he said that sentence right. That means that he really thinks that's not, that's not, I argue that's not the way you read your Bible. Um, but you, you can read certain scripture passages, and those things do matter in nuance once you're at that level. But in the, the big picture, the broad strokes, just read it like you read any other book. Don't stress. Um, and then if you want to do Bible study, get something that's more towards the exacting side, like a New American Standard or Revised Standard or um, ASV, uh, American Standard. Uh, some of them are a little old. Some of them still use these and that, these and those. A lot of the newer translations are really get to be more of the loosey goosey side of things and less exacting. The older stuff you'll find is very exacting and very precise to the original wording of the text. And uh, I would argue get both. Um, get an NASB and then get like a New Living translation and just go with those. Um, so that's that's almost all that I have for you. Listen, I'm going to do one later on. This is ridiculously long. So I'm going to do one later on resources for you to use online that are available everywhere. But just right now, BibleGateway.com, that gets you some really good online Bible reading. They like to isolate single verses out of text when you search for stuff, though. Always read the whole chapter at least. Do not read a single verse out of context. Read it in the context that it was written, at least the whole chapter it's in. Um, preferably the whole book it's in to go, oh, I see what he's getting at. Um, and then uh, my personal favorite, it doesn't lend itself to really easy reading, but it's it's a better um, for digging resource. You can read it also, but it's, it's more for cross-referencing stuff, is blueletterbible.org. It got me through Bible college. I still use it to this day. Uh, you are never more than three clicks away from looking at every single Bible verse in the Bible where this one Greek word is used. Three clicks and you're there. It's awesome. So, um, those are those are two I'll start you out with. Um, but yeah, version Bible, anything. Literally anything. Find something, read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. Um, but you gotta go find that out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. <sighs> I'm a big reading Rainfo fan, okay? Shut up. Uh, I will see you next time, and Godspeed.